Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. To be profitable, you have to be very sophisticated as an operation. And people don't think that craft breweries are, and they come in overconfident and get their asses kicked. Most people only have one spouse. Having more than two careers at a time is rare. The world would be far better off if we never had a second Crow movie, or absolutely anything Keanu Reeves ever did other than John Wick. And there was only one ring in that book, and only one goal can win a soccer match. But somehow, when it comes to the production of beer today, we think every brewery should make seven million mediocre beers. One-offs, seasonals, brand extensions, variety packs, and special releases. All this to catch the attention of a massive asses that don't care about beer or traditional values it once held. Well, Greg Taylor at Canada's Steam Whistle Brewing says only hosers would do that. He says it's all wrong. See. Greg and his co-founders started Canada's largest craft brewery back in the early 2000s with a single goal to make one beer and make it really, really well. And they did that for nearly 20 years before switching tracks at the roundabout and going full U.S. craft beer gonzo. They were making various line extensions and new products until one day, Greg runs back in the building, rips out the excess, and goes back to the motto of do one thing really, really well. Well, before we get too far into it. I'm gonna shut up and let him explain his story. So Greg, I wanna thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a singularly focused, hyper-concentrated fuck about helping all of my guests be better in their careers today. So that is my long-winded and strange uh, welcome. So welcome to the show, Greg. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Uh, appreciate you uh, having us on. Yeah, no, I'm looking very forward to getting into, for me, the main reason I wanted to interview you is that I am fascinated by the idea of uh, kind of giving into what craft beer forced everyone to do in the late teens. And then, uh, and I don't want to foreshadow too much, but then just telling them all to get fucked and go back to doing what you really want to do and doing it well. But before we get to that, well, I want to hear your story. Like, how did you get started in this and why are we sitting here today? So I grew up in a small town of, of 5,000 people. Country boy came to the city to go to, to university and <laughs> I dropped out actually after two years going to U of T. Became a bike courier and met a, a young lady and I ended up going to her place of work, which was a craft brewery called the Upper Canada Brewing Company, having a beer there. And, you know, I had a tough time uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but I just looked around and went, whoa, this is the coolest place ever. You know, I'd love to have a job here. And eventually, after a couple of months, I got a job delivering beer part-time for the brewery. Not on the bicycle, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is actually in a, uh, a Chevette, which was this little four-door compact. We delivered kegs in it. Believe it or not, 1988 is when I started doing that. That is a small and car. So, I had one of those. Okay, yeah, you know it, right? So eventually we got a, a van and stuff, but we were the first crappery to start delivering beer directly to customers here in Toronto, and I think really in, in Ontario, province of Ontario. 
so it was a great learning experience and, and I worked my way into uh, into sales there helped um, automate the the distribution department and and then became eventually over 10 years the uh, director of sales there and uh, at that point we were uh, purchased by a larger craft brewer the business was sold deconstructed this is back in the old days this is 1996 I think it was deconstructed and the volume was moved to another facility and and unfortunately that didn't work for them five years later the brand was pretty much gone but it, it taught us a lot just having you know it was 10 years working in the business we learned a lot about the struggles of being profitable as a brewer with a large portfolio which we had at the upper canada brewing company learned a lot about building culture making good beer selling beer you know the distribution channels because we delivered our own beer as well so we were all on a canoe trip a year afterwards so this would have been 98 i think the business was sold 97 so 98 we were uh, on a canoe trip with a bunch of the staff we went on this spring canoe trip in algonquin park every year we decided to do the same a year after it had been shut down and everyone was, was fired and had new jobs late one night like three in the morning we we're sitting around the fire myself and a guy greg cromwell was my old boss at the old brewery and then cameron heaps who, who worked for me and we started talking about um, the fact that we were we were out of beer we just loved it so much we wanted to get back in maybe we'll start our own brewery and around that campfire we came up with this idea of calling it three fired guys because we'd all been uh, go you know we discussed even that at that point in terms of building a business plan the challenges we were having in a small facility of of a broad portfolio and we recognized that our lager that we had up for canada lager was by far the best seller and contributed any margin we had uh was coming from that brand and so we um we came away from there and spent a couple of months working on a plan and decided that my wife, Sybil, was, was involved with us. She did a lot of the marketing at the original brewery. And she suggested we look at alternatives to Three Fired Guys Brewing because at the time, believe it or not, breweries were more conservative in their in the, in their names. So we were on a building. We were considering leasing from the province as, as, our, as our new brewery. And I just said to my partner, Cam, hey, what if we put a big steam whistle on top of the building and blow that off at 5 o'clock and send a message out roared at the end of the day? Because we had this idea of a brand being one of the, like a, a retro brand, overbuilt quality, age of innocence sort of thing. And we had this old bottle that we, we planned to use for it. So then we decided, hey, that that could be a name. And if we put a steam whistle on our brewery that would have that sound, that's mnemonic that's so important in terms of building brands, especially if you're using radio and stuff like that, which at the time was really important to us. So uh, we came away from that and put together our, our business plan. We found a building in downtown Toronto the Railway Roundhouse, which people can visit if they're coming to Toronto for baseball or hockey games. It's right down there with everybody else. And the key thing was, if we're going to meet payroll, let's just get one beer right. Let's just get it right. Because if we're focusing on doing a Pilsner, which was our choice, because the old brewery were successful with a lager, and it has broad acceptance, it really would be a gateway craft beer. If we're doing one beer, we know we're going to get the quality right. It's going to simplify the whole business. And there's a better chance we're going to make money. And stay in business. And this is one of the things that craft brewers, I think, get wrong is you, you can't just answer all your customer interests in what new beers, what they want from you. Because if you do that, you're not going to make money. And eventually, and a lot of craft breweries go for many years without making money, you're not going to meet the cash calls and you're going to go to business. So this was our chance to put our, or Sybil and I, we put our house on the line to get the loan to uh, to build the brewery with. And we just knew we had to do it right. And we had the fortune of working for 10 years for, for someone else who invested and started up the Upper Canada Brewing Company. So that's how we got Kelly to the point where we decided, okay, like we're just going to do one beer and see how that goes and maybe do some others. We, of course, we hit the ground running because we built a business 
using the best of the best staff that were all let go from the prior brewery had all this great experience. So we bring them in and we're a team that we really knew what we were up against. If we had a lot of contacts in the industry, especially in the distribution channel. Did a lot of those contacts still kind of like, is this a year, year and a half later, two years, maybe by the time you were going not that long later like yeah. yeah it's like a year a year later we start calling them back saying hey we're going to do something here <laughs> get ready because like, yeah. we were a leading craft brewery at the time the upper can brew company was successful quite successful so they were happy with us and and we knew we had that advantage to to hit the ground running and and staffing it up with the right people who you know in, in each area of the business we had the right people leading it so we were fortunate and then we it was such a, a differentiator this do one thing People were like, no, you're a crap brewery. You got to do the other beers. And we just telling people, no, we're not going to do that. And, and I think they respected the discipline. It's like, no, I'm sorry. If you want a, an IPA, there's a lot of crap breweries in, in Ontario. You can get, there's hundreds of them. You can get them elsewhere. We're focusing on making the best Pilsner in the country. And uh, it went well. And we became the largest crap brand in the country with one beer. It sort of was I mean, like that you're being anti by being traditional almost in a way. And so it kind of makes you stand out. Uh, which is cool. You got one yeast and you got a bottling line running all day long. When we started, we just had bottles. We didn't even have kegs or cans, just bottles. The thing never stopped running. No yeah. changeovers. Beautiful. Easy and simple. Yeah. So it's interesting because some of the best beers in the world, and when I was talking to a friend about this the other day, uh, when when I really got into beer in a big way, it was probably in the mid-2000s, maybe a little before that. And still to this day, some of those beers that were the best ones that inspired me to want to be a brewer and to make beer and own a brewery eventually, they all pretty much only made one. And for hundreds of years, that seemed like the model. And then all of a sudden, you had to have a new beer every week to stay alive. So it just sort of changed. And you guys were maybe a little before that? Or is it already starting at that point where it was just, what do you got for a seasonal? What do you got new? Every time you walked into a retailer. Yeah, I mean, when we started, there was only seven breweries in Ontario. And now there's over 400. So it wasn't as competitive, but we did look, and I'm glad you brought that up, Kelly. We, we, we looked at Guinness and went, Hey, like if you want to become a really big beer, it seems like Heineken focusing is a good idea because all the resources of your staff, all the money you have for marketing goes to one beer. It's brilliant. Think of it because it'll just go a lot much further. Generally, when you're a craft, we're bringing out all these styles. It's really hard to establish the brand because everyone sees all these different logos and, and things come and go. And it's, it's just a bit confusing. And, you know, as consumers, we have limited capacity to remember about brands. So how do you get that top of mind awareness? One of the ways to do it is being consistent, and putting all your efforts and energy into building one brand. So when they think about steam whistle, they just think, oh, yeah, Pilsner. Can you say like how close that was to sort of that original lager recipe? Did you guys get to do a lot of tweaks and changes or is it pretty much you kind of knew what you were doing and you just ran with that basic recipe? No, we did change it, actually. We had different ideas. And, you know, it wasn't really a Czech Pilsner style lager that we were doing at the Upper Canada Brewing Company. So we came to steam whistle. We want to do it. It's not a true Czech Pilsner, but more of that style. So it was a new recipe. We did a whole bunch of tasting of European beers. Uh, when we uh, developed the recipe. The other thing I should mention is if you go back into you know, Ontario and Canada, and I'm sure in the U.S. in 1998, 1999, what was happening then with craft beer was it was on the downslope and import beers were just taking off. In, in this country, Stella Heineken growing 45% craft beer, either plateauing or going down. So we were in the situation, Kelly, where we were investing all this money to build this brewery. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, craft beer is over with? Is it possible that it'll continue to head down? So what are we going to do? And this is when we came up with the idea of let's just compete against the imports. Let's be Canada's premium beer. You know, we've got a green bottle. 
Let's compare ourselves to Heineken. Go after that. So that we were protected if Kraft actually, you know, at the time it was believable. Maybe Kraft is already over, started in 85 in Canada and 90, 98, 99. Maybe it's had its day. Wasn't the case. But so that's the other reason why when we talked about the ideas of seeing what Guinness and Heineken were doing and how successful they had been, that it made a lot of sense to focus because that's what those big imports were doing. And they were clearly finding success with 45% growth here in the province of Ontario back then. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of times, especially here in the States, there are breweries that want to compete with that. But there's a, a brewery here in Texas and they made a beer called River Beer. And the whole idea was it was this like cheap beer. You just guzzled while you were floating down the river or skiing or whatever. And when I remember hearing from the distributor when they were bringing it out and doing market tests that they were going to make it a cheap product. And so it was going to compete with the, you know, Michelob Ultra's obviously premium, but so like the Bud Lights, the the cheaper type ones that most craft beer guys can't hit the, the price point at retail at. And when it came out, he line priced it and he just made it, you know, I don't know what you guys are there. So like it was, I think it was $8.99 or nine bucks, nine fifty maybe a six pack. And it just, it can't compete because it, it wasn't like it was more flavorful or better. It was basically the same freaking beer, but at a more expensive price point. It's a long-winded way of asking the question. Uh, obviously, Heineken can compete at that lower price point because of their economies of scale. What did you guys do to kind of make up for that as a smaller brewery? Did you just say we're going to be more expensive or did you try to hit their same price point when you're competing with them? We've always led when it comes to premium pricing at Steam Whistle. We've always been the most expensive craft brewery. The confidence in our brand, we always made sure we we're in very close to Heineken and Stella pricing. We understood it's simple with the consumer. If you're a premium beer, you have to be premium priced. You just can't get away with saying, oh, we're a premium beer, but you're going to discount price, and it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the wine stock to the staff, I want to, they'll ask you, you want a $20 bottle of wine or, or $30 bottle of wine? Well, I want a 30 one. Okay, the $30 premium wines are over here. Well, if you want to be a premium beer, you have to be in that price category. So we we led that, and it was a ballsy move back then because no one was charging what we were, but people liked it. We were in a beautiful green bottle, and it, it worked. And so we've we've kept that ever since, and that's helped our margin. Certainly, we're not getting the margins that the big guys are, but it's been pretty good as a result of being disciplined about our pricing. So we went into uh, a collector's house who had thousands of beer bottles that were from Canadian beer bottles, and we found this one, which is the original Canadian industry bottle. So what they did was... And back in the, in the 40s, all the breweries made about the same bottle and just shared it. They stopped doing that sometime in the 50s. And we, we got this mold and it's a thick green glass bottle. We bought the mold because it has that Ontario history and then built our, our design and we it's a painted bottle. This has really helped us because it's green, which, which means premium, but it's also got that vintage look and style to it. Beautiful mm-hmm. to drink beer. I think you have to do that if you're trying to make one beer and, and create that brand. And that's a... Was it kind of an accident or was that a thing from the beginning? We have to do this because it seems like it makes yeah. sense in hindsight for sure. Yeah, it was intentional, right? The other thing is for us, the environment was a concern and, and the return of this bottle, again, is at 33% thicker in terms of glass and weight. So it can go through the plant 45 to 50 times and there's just nothing that can beat that environmentally, right? Like and in Ontario, have this brilliant system of, of returning bottles. It started with pop bottles and beer bottles back in the day and then pop went to cans. But Still, you know, you, you get deposit return. So even if people throw our bottle out into the, uh, the recycling bin, 
people come along and, and grab it and take it to the liquor store or beer store and return it for the deposit. So we get our 80% of our bottles back. It's, it's just a great investment. That's awesome. Um, that, you know, it's a great point of difference too, because most beers are in either in cans or in industry standard beer bottle here in Ontario. This is your story, but on mine, when at the very end, that was one of the biggest challenges for me was always having to order new pallets of bottles constantly, get them here on time. Then with COVID shipping delays. So if you could have even just a percentage of your bottles being returned or at least not traveling too far from home, that that would help dramatically, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you got millions of bottles in our float, so they're just always coming back in and we just have to augment, you know, on a regular basis. So <laughs> we got some bottles that have been in there since we started. Bottles coming from 20 years ago that are still in the system that have lasted that long. So that's cool. It's, and it really matches our whole brand too. This sort of old is, is new again and and this overbuilt quality, simple systems, the way they used to do things. It's funny, it, you know, environmentally, some of the practices that they used to follow were really quite a bit better than they are today. Well, you since you mentioned old is new, that is sort of the next thing I want to talk about. But let's take a quick break and we come back. I want to hear about when you transition to doing it the other way. So, all right, sure. we're okay. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. So welcome back. Uh, like I said before the break, I want to hear sort of how you ran into the, I guess, the, the craft beer rage and, and sort of did the same thing where you started making some other beers. But so for about Roughly 20 years, basically, you continue to make Pilsner and almost exclusively Pilsner for Canadians. And then all of a sudden, what, 2018, it's time to branch out and try some new things? Well, actually, there's an important part of that story that I need to tell you. And that is that I left the business in 2017 to go into cannabis. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So what happens when I'm away? Uh, <laughs> someone else is over. And they're like, okay, got to do it like everyone else. You're gone Let's one start. year. Yeah. <laughs> No, I was gone for three years. Okay. So 2017, I left July 1st, 2017, came back June 15th, 2020. So it was almost exactly three years. And, you know, things when, when someone else takes over a business, they obviously, they often want to, you know, make their mark on it. And, and maybe the guy running it before didn't know what he was doing. And I do and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's natural, right? So, and I'll tell you, I, you know, I've come back and done the same thing. I've made changes because I felt it was the right direction to take, but so yeah, when I left, came up with other beers. They came up with line extensions of, of Steam Whistle, which I would never agree to, but they did. And uh, we had that respect of the discipline of saying, you know, we came up with this mantra of do one thing really, really well, which was brought to us in 2002 by a, a marketing guy that called us. And we had tons of people calling us saying they wanted to help us. But this guy called me and said, listen, I stood outside your brewery and asked 200 people what you know about Steam Whistle. And I think you'd be interested in hearing what they said. So... He got me, right? I'm like, I got to hear this. <laughs> so he comes in and tells us two things. Number one thing they knew is that you're in the Roundhouse in downtown Toronto. And I'm like, well, you asked the question outside the Roundhouse. That's pretty clear. He said, no, the second one's important. People know that you only make one beer, but they don't understand why. They're confused. You're a craft brew. What are you doing? 
So what the guy said is the answer needs to be about quality because that's what it was about, right? It was about making one beer, getting it right, not moving on to something else because if you want to be an Olympic gold medal rowing boat, you practice for six years and get it right. And that's the only way you win on a, you know, an international scale like that. You need to be focused. You need to be disciplined. Send that message out. And, and then he said, I've got this thing I want you to use as your mantra. You got to pay me for it, but it's do one <laughs> thing really well, right? So we thought about thought, this is a great idea because it's a, we're already doing this. And we had so many people ask, when you come with an ale? And we're like, we're not doing ale. Now we could send a message, not just about operationally why this was important, but as part of our brand message, we're the guys who only do one thing. And this thing took off for us, Kelly. Like we didn't have to do much advertising before people started to return it. Oh, you're the guys that do one thing. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we all wish in our lives that we could really focus. We probably would be better at doing things if we could have fewer things to try to manage when you get up in the morning. So there was people were like, this is cool. I like this idea. The beer must be good if they're only making, how can they screw it up if they're only making one? I'll buy into that. It's more expensive. Sure. It's probably worth it. So that became a huge asset for us. By the time I left in 2017, everyone knew this, right? And uh, so I leave, they do two brand extensions. They launched another brand independent from Steam Whistle Name. And um, we developed a partnership with New Belgian. So then I came back and I was pretty certain. I'd gone into retailers when I was away that I knew over the years that were in my neighborhood. And... Um, one of the managers in a beer store close to my house said, Greg, like, what's up? You guys gave up on Seamus Pilsner. I'm going, what are you talking about? No, no, the sales guy's coming in saying, why don't you sell this other stuff now? I'm like, oh, God, what a mistake, you know? So I came back and, you know, we, we took our time on it. I didn't want to, you know, change the course in the boat too quickly to, to upset people. But So it took about a year to get to the point where we could get rid of the Seamus brand extensions and just focus back on steam whistle. And then we did a uh, billboard campaign that we we're going back to do one thing. The first campaign we did, we did a billboard campaign in 2020 in the fall after I came back. And it was great. It was a simple message on the billboard that said, hey, Google, what's Canada's premium beer? <laughs> and if you Google that, our name comes up, right? So it was this proactive message that confirmed that we were, in terms of becoming the premium beer in this country, we had the lead on that. And that was enough to show everybody, okay, that's what Google's telling us. Let's go back to do one thing and get back on this journey. I didn't explain this earlier on, Kelly, but when we started, we said the first day we started in 2000, March 22nd of 2000, we said to the staff on the line, we're going to become Canada's premium beer. <laughs> no one else who's claimed that, we're going to claim it. Of course, our staff are laughing, but we only got one pallet of beer filled. We don't really know what we're doing, but it was our first day, right? So. When I came back in 2020, I said, guys, we're, we're, we're going back after that. We're ahead of everyone else. Let's just keep going there because every country needs a beer that their citizens believe is is the, the key representative for them. Like Heineken and Guinness are good examples of that. Well, so talk a little bit, and I guess it sounds like that might have been right after you left, but probably had to have been in the works before that. You guys also opened a huge $22 million facility in like 1819, something like that. Uh, was that just yeah, so, uh, um, too much, not enough capacity to meet needs or did you see some growth coming? What, what was sort of the thought process with the new brewery? Well, uh, for those who have visited the Roundhouse where Steam Whistle is, was founded, it, it's become really a hospitality-focused facility because of where it is. It's 
there at the CN Tower. The the aquarium is there. The uh, Rogers Center where the, the Blue Jays play is there. The uh, Scotiabank Center where the Toronto Maple Leafs play. The Raptors play there. So it's really the center of for tourism for Toronto. And we decided that it would make more sense to have production not in the downtown core of one of North America's largest cities. I think it's third or fourth largest city in North America. Um, you know, traffic was becoming a nightmare. And uh, and our business from a hospitality end of it, like the in the uh, uh, the tap room, which is getting out of control, like huge lineups for games, et cetera. So but the decision was made to purchase a facility further out of town. It's about 15, 20 minute drive from downtown, the west end of the city, and build a purpose-built brewing campus here. And that's where I am today. So we do all our brewing here. We've got a, a warehouse next door to us that can handle every, all our needs, all our inputs. We've got no uh, third-party storage anywhere. It's all right here. And then the roundhouse has, has been developed and will further develop it as a hospitality and, and a brand experience center. So we have a brew pub there. We've got a restaurant there. We do a lot of large event halls. And uh, that's been really successful for us, especially events, because people from across the country come for weddings, et cetera, and they get to experience the brand there. And uh, so that's how we ended up with two facilities. And when I came back, we, we were splitting the brewing, et cetera, between both of them. But now we've focused mainly the brewing production is happening in the uh, the Evans Avenue facility, which is more conducive to that. And the hospitality is all happening downtown at the original roundhouse location. So basically, in a nutshell, your on-premise business got so busy that you had to repurpose the space for more tables and area for people to buy over the counter, essentially. We love people coming to brew at a party. Yeah. So we now have we can we can sit uh, 350 people in our larger event space, 250 in our smaller one. I was there on Saturday, you know, get two weddings going on in two ends of the building. Right? It's beautiful space downtown, beautiful patio view of the city. It's pretty cool. Um, you can go online and see that stuff. So that's an important part of our business. We're creating brand experiences, and and people across the country know Steam Whistle because they have actually visited what we call our cathedral of beer. People come there and we we meet and exceed their expectations of what a craft brewery is all about because we're fortunate to have a fabulous roundhouse. It's again, it was part of the pioneering of our country is the railway, the steam railroads at the time. And and when you come to there and see that, you know, cobblestone patio, post and beam, timber construction, it's beautiful. And that that's important to, important to the brand. People, especially in craft, beer tourism is huge. They want to come and find out where Steam Whistle was born. And if it turns out the place is a lot of fun to sit and drink, they may stay all afternoon, <laughs> come back the next day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In America, unfortunately, we had a glut, especially through the 2000s or the early teens, of just all the breweries going to warehouses. And so it was super cool to, like, you know, go through an oil patch street, bumpy, un- unfinished shit, and look for there's tiny little wooden, shitty sign, find the place, or even just a banner, find the place in the back. That lasted a couple of years, and then people were like, this sucks. I don't want to drink in this place anymore. So it yeah. kind of revamped itself. You know, the, the whole idea of Cathedral of Beer is important. People want to, especially for us, <clears throat> we're going to be Canada's most respected premium beer. You need to compete with the imports in terms of how those facilities are. And i got to tell you, we have, I, there's no question, we have the, pre- most, the preeminent brewing facility in the country. It is that good, and that's what you'll find if you go to or Heineken or Go to Guinness, that's what you're going to find. So I think that's important no matter what size you are to try to create a great customer experience in your group pub. Even if you and are in a commercial 
box brewery, whatever you can, you can do your best to make sure that when people come in there, they leave with a smile and, and they, they loved your the experience of drinking your beer there. No, it sounds actually really cool. So I'm uh, looking forward to at some point coming over there and trying it out. So you mentioned the facility, obviously it was, you know, world-class. You had the new Belgium thing. So talk a little about how that works out. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that would be super jealous that you get to brew for one of the preemptive United States breweries. Did they seek you out? Did you did you build that facility with that in mind? How did, how did that kind of come about? Well, we really respected what New Belgium was doing. And when we opened up, we lo- loved the culture they had built with their staff, you know, the whole idea of the bicycle and everyone starts out their job and they, they get a bike and you can't park it at the brewery and all this great stuff that your environmental ethos that we thought was fabulous and, and respecting employees and giving them opportunities to grow in the business. And you know, the idea that you could have a career there was was something we loved. So we did a lot of visiting down there. And, you know, we used a lot of their ideas, to be honest, in, in developing our own culture and got to know some folks down there, a couple of Canadians that were working there. And we just thought, well, we've got the infrastructure, especially in the distribution side of it. Could we bring on another beer, a respected beer, and produce it and then have our sales team and our distribution team manage it? You know, consumers really wouldn't need to know or necessarily know that it was Steamwhistle making it so it wouldn't distract from do one thing but in terms of capacity and in, in the in the plant capacity in our vehicles distribution and in the sales capacity and sales team sales force you know it would make sense to to consider that so that was actually my initiative before i left back in 2015 2016 we started to talk to them and then after i departed the team um, signed a deal and, and brought new belgian here to Canada, and I, and I will credit them with really helping us develop our own processes here and raising our own the bar on quality to meet their standards. Very strict standards that uh, we had to meet in order to get certified by New Belgium to brew their product here in, in Canada. And again, it's helped us, and in fact, helped other craft breweries because we we do help other craft breweries when it comes to quality. We have a great facility, a lab facility here that can you know help help them when they're having some challenges. So. Yeah, that that uh, partnership, I'm very proud of. Everyone here is very proud of it, and, and it's worked really well for us. And that was the first departure for us into another beer. My idea in general is, as a brewer, I think it would be better to have a large portfolio of independent brands as opposed to a portfolio of brand extensions. Mm-hmm. So that was our first move into you know using that strategy. I actually have talked on previous episodes many times, and I interviewed a brewery that was currently contract brewing. And in a lot of ways, I think, especially for the the brand, the the contracting brewery, I think it's just a genius way, not just to get started, but but more to put some guardrails on the, the bowling game in the sense where there's just less opportunity for failure, a little more easily managed, especially for people that aren't good at that supply side procurement and all that kind of thing. But I haven't asked somebody from the other side. So I'm curious from your perspective, how is that advantageous for your business? I, I feel like it's a strong brand. It probably has great sales as the contract door, what are some of the advantages that you see? Yeah, I mean, it really, in a way, it's when you describe contract brewing, we're actually licensing it. So, you know, it's our brand here. We do all the marketing and sales and social media guided by New Belgian. But, you know, it feels feels more ownership as opposed to just actually, we don't do any straight contract brewing here where you can come in and we'll brew it for you and package for you and you ship it to you. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. If we're brewing it here, it's our beer. We represent it. We own it. Um, in the case of New Belgium, we've got a licensing deal with them. So it works really great for us because, again, we're filling a pipeline. We're filling capacity. If you go into you know, Ontario, an LCBO store, for example, you have specific areas 
where they're retailing Ontario craft beers and different area in the store where they're retailing U.S. craft beers. Mm. So it just makes so much sense. Our rep goes in and talks about the Ontario craft beers they have and the U.S. craft beers, the one that we have in Belgium. And, and so I, I just can't say enough about it. It's worked really well for us. Again, we've grown our business. Uh, our quality is better as a result of working with those guys. And they've guided us without them knowing it through the years and in, in following their culture and all the great things they've done to become the leader there in the U.S. So, yeah, you know, it's great. And, and we did, when I came back, we were doing some contract brewing, straight contract brewing for other people. And, and I cut all that out. I just didn't think that that suited our culture and, and, and the vision we have for how our business is going to grow. Well, I'll be honest, this is the first time I've actually listened to someone talk about licensing. Um, and I would I will be in, in reviewing that much more and in researching that. I think that might even be a, an even better opportunity. So sounds cool. I would really appreciate you sharing that. Let's take a quick break. And then I want to hear about going back to your roots. So I'll be right back. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer up your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, so welcome back. In my book, I made the observation that quality and branding rarely correlate in this industry with anything that looks like quality equals success. It tends to be more branding oriented. But I got to assume that your beers were good. I mean, again, I haven't tried them, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that I'm I'm willing to grant you that. The beers are probably all very good. And I also have to assume that they weren't outselling Pilsner. Otherwise, you'd have been like, well, maybe we should make pale ale instead of Pilsner. When you made those decisions, obviously it took a couple of years to completely rip them out of the portfolio. What were some of the reasons that you wanted to get rid of some of those brands? And did any of them seem like they should have stuck or you regret, you know, maybe regret financially getting rid of them? Well, it was tough, I'm telling you. And this, this is one of the challenges for any craft brewery to really back away from a beer, even one that's doing well. In our case, both beers are doing pretty well for us compared to other craft breweries. But, you know, at the end of the day, Kelly, the asset that we had with Do One Thing really, really well and, and with Steam Whistle Pilsner was so strong, the brand asset, I could not I could not give it up. And I knew what all it would take is for us to commit to dropping those two line extensions. And the idea, the team believed that we could gain that volume back within at least a year by focusing again and uh, seeing growth from that original brand. So, yeah, it wasn't easy to do. People thought we were crazy to give up volume to actually stop producing a beer that's doing pretty well. But we knew that we didn't want to lose that uh, that point of difference that we had over every era of the craft brewery. And so I was excited to do it. We announced in the sales meeting, I'll never forget this, we announced the sales team that we're going back to do one thing. People were just clapping and going, this is great because that's what everyone wants. All our retailers want that. They they're confused to why we gave that up because they used us as an example for other craft breweries and said, listen, do you really have to do all these beers? Look what these guys are doing, right? Consumers. So we went and hit social media with this message and they were just so excited. 
Nobody was saying, what are you doing? They're all going, yeah, it's back. Do one thing. So there's no question it was the right move for us. You know, in, in a way, I see it as a cost to build the brand, dropping those other brands. And often in the first brew I worked for before we started this one, I saw, you know, I don't sometimes ego plays a role in it, but people just don't want to give up brands they started. They don't want to be proven wrong or they don't want to believe this didn't really work. That's OK. Mistakes are OK because you learn from them and you get better. So I, I would encourage anybody who's got some brands that are dying or getting in the way of, of future success because you have limited resources as a craft brewer. There's only so much you can do to get your name out there and get recognition and top mind brand awareness to build confidence, quality, and the quality of beer with consumers. You got to cut stuff out. Okay. So this, I'm actually really interested to ask this question. Obviously, it's a contrarian view as far as looking at the market overall. From my perspective, and we're going to get into this a little bit with kind of how, how everything's made or whatever, but I would agree. I think I'm, I was, I'm super jealous when I found out you guys were doing this, especially with a lot of the shit that I dealt with at the end. And, you know, the new, I literally would release a new beer every like six weeks. It was exhausting. So I'm jealous how it goes, but I'm just curious in America, you would literally be getting hate. Do you think that you're not either A, because the Canadian beer market is different, or B, you guys had that 20-year tenure as you know, already having done this and people expected that from you and they had already gotten the message that that's the right, almost like the right thing to do or the better way to do it? I, I'm just, your opinion, I'm curious. You know, you built a brand that's, it's the best known craft brand across the country and you, you don't really, you don't want to give that up, right? And, and one of the things I didn't mention, one of the things I didn't mention, the other advantage, and I just got this from you, Kelly, because you're talking about how you had exhausting come with all these beers. Think about this. You go to your marketing team and you say, marketing team, no new beers. All we have to do is make Steam Whistle relevant to consumers this year. That's all we have to do. We have to do marketing activities that you know express excitement and want to have people connect with our brand. So what happens is all that energy goes into the, just building that brand. And it's a huge advantage. So we do a lot of gift pack stuff in stores. And it, it's a way of grabbing people's attention without having to launch a new beer. In a way, it's easy for a marketing team to lo- keep launching new beers, launching new beers, right? And it's more difficult to say no new beers. And this is what we said earlier this year when we said do one thing. Now what you have to do is use your creativity to build the brand and build connections with consumers. So gift packs, I think, are, are the best example of how we do that. So we did a, um, a wall-mounted bo- bottle opener in the LCBO when we first opened back in 2001 or 2002. We did a beautiful job of this thing. It's all metal. The bucket pulls off. It's all magnetic, so the tap bucket pulls off. Oh, that's cool. The opener itself, it's, it's magnetic, so it attaches to your fridge. And we sold 150,000 of those as a gift pack with, with six bottles, right? So everyone's taking these things home, and they're using them in their house. You know, like all of our packs... We done a we did a lunchbox, a metal lunchbox, and inside there were, were were six cans of beer, and it was a nice, really good quality metal lunchbox with the steam whistle branding on it, and it's bright green. All of our stuff is bright green, so then people take that home, they're buying our beer with it, and then they're using a lunchbox in their house, and people see it. I saw an interview with with a politician the other day, and in behind him is is you know typical thing where it's a it's a bookshelf, and on the bookshelf is this steam whistle lunchbox, right? That's so cool. that that's how we we look at the opportunity is we don't want to be launching. And the other part of that is when you talk about, and this is what people in craft forget all too often, how's your bottom line looking? If you're running that line with one brand all day long and spending your marketing money on building up one brand, 
chances are you're going to be more profitable than if you're constantly launching new brands because you know the the, the planning forecasting issues around that the You've got your uh, operators changing the lineup all the time and brewers, all these different yeasts. It's hard to get it right. Just so first of all, it's hard to get it right to, to meet the demand and all the different SKUs. But it's also hard to get the quality right when you have all these different beers being produced going through the lab. Like it's, it's confusing, right? So if you eliminate the confusion and that confusion, when I talk about clearing up confusion, it's for everyone from our truck drivers to our own customers. We eliminate the confusion by simplifying the equation and focusing all our marketing dollars, all our quality control dollars, all that energy and effort into, into the one brand. Do you guys have the ability or are you required in Canada to do like grocery store samplings and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What question my buddy Jeff's going to be mad at me if I don't ask. When you went from multiple brands to one brand, do you get to do that less since people have technically already tasted it or do you still do in-store samplings as often as you used to? Yeah, we do we do in-store samplings, but to be honest, a lot of people have tried the beer, right? So you're not sampling it like a new product and people always want to talk about new. But we have people that say they haven't tried the beer for a long time mm -hmm. and it, maybe they went away from Pilsners and, and went to IPAs and they're coming back to it. We always get people coming up interested. They've heard about it and they're going to try it. You have a good staff, strong staff member doing the tasting. You'll get good results out of it. It might not be as exciting as a, as a, as a brand new beer. New things are very exciting. But we still, we do take, it was on a call with sales guys this morning saying they're setting up a whole bunch of tasting. So yeah, that, that never goes away. I actually did an in-store sampling with a uh, sour pickle beard once to give you an idea. It would be much easier to do that with a Pilsner on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Most for people sure. would be nicer to you. So I'm, I'm curious for you guys, what did you see with the competitive landscape change from the time that you left to the time you got back? What, was it just more retailers, less retailers, breweries everywhere? Was it like hyper-competitive or... Or did you find that it was easier for you? Like, what, what, I guess, what was that difference from when you left to when you came back? Well, to be honest, Kelly, it didn't really change tons. I mean, when I left in the summer of 2017, the proliferation of bird craft birds across the country and in the U.S., just crazy, right? Like, and then we started to see the pie starting to shrink and everyone wanting more slices out of that pie. And, and wow. And then a lot of the movement towards really super local brew pubs taking a bit of that share, right? People getting growlers and, the, you know, I love that the pride in local breweries is, is excellent. People, I really feel strongly about when it comes to the restaurant industry, if you've got a brew pub compared to just a regular restaurant, you've got an advantage because people are proud of their local craft brew. Friends come to the house, they'll go by before they, maybe they're coming for dinner. Buddy, you mind pick me up um, on the ferry in, in Vancouver I was out west visiting him. He picks me up at the ferry and takes me to his local brew pub meet the brewer, meet the owner, get a couple of growlers. There's something, about, there's pride in that experience that a regular restaurant can't compete against, right? So mm -hmm. anyway, that's exploded. That, that started back in 2015, 2014. Then, you know, it, it amazingly, there's still, the number of brewery openings still keeps going even after COVID because people all dream the dream. A lot of people over the last 22 years have come to us and said, we want to do what you guys did. Like, go for it, right? But it's not easy, man. It's not easy. Like I, I, I have this conversation with Kelly. A lot of sleepless nights, man. A lot of times <laughs> when the bank's at the door, right? Like you know all yeah. about it. It's tough. It's tough. So, uh, but I, 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 you know, I, I was in cannabis for a while. Doesn't hold the shine for me like like beer does. I mean, I just I love beer and love to be back here. I love to be fighting the fight. Honestly, I'm a much healthier guy 
back here for the last two years than I was when I was out of it. Really? Oh, yeah. It's good for me. So you you had mentioned earlier that you, instead of having more buying items throughout your uh, portfolio, that you want to have a portfolio of breweries. I guess that kind of came about earlier this year, too. You uh, had partnered up with a local brewery in your area to do distribution and sales and then ended up merging with them. Yeah, I mean, we we came out of COVID with a lot less volume because, you know, maybe 35% of our business was in the restaurant book trade. And so it was gone and and through COVID. And so when I came back here, I said, hey, you know, this thing with Belgians worked out well. If we envision a portfolio, portfolio portfolio selling is important, especially coming out of COVID where restaurateurs, uh, retailers, if they can deal with one person that has a portfolio of strong brands, it's much easier for them, right? So I said, guys, we have capacity here. How about we partner up with a, another craft brewery? And in the case, in this case, it was Bose All Natural Brewing, who's probably the number two craft brewery in Ontario. Partner up with them for for distribution and, and sales, and then we started brewing for them, and, and then we we acquired the business. So now we we've got that independent brand. It's very strong. We do a lot of the brewing of those products here in our facility where we had capacity, high quality facility here. Again, back to New Belgium, they really helped us raise the bar in terms of quality. So we've done a really great job of improving the quality of, of Bose products. And uh, when our sales reps go in to a retailer, they've got New Belgium, the number one craft brewery, I believe in the US or number two, maybe. Seamless Pilsner, the number one premium beer in Canada. And then and Bose is the number one craft beer in Ontario. It's a really strong portfolio of independent brands you go to a restaurant you see these those three beers on tap i mean there's no connection between the three really mm-hmm. the fact that we brew it all here so obviously with that in mind uh so you you start with a little bit of distribution with bows and then you took them over was that your plan all along with new belgium are you gonna buy new well, we're not taking new belgium <laughs> we're not taking new belgium over <laughs> i don't think so no no I, that wasn't uh, new belgium yeah we were excited for all those reasons i talked about before to, to represent such a respected u.s craft brewer and then you know with bose it was it was it was an opportunity there to, to help work with steve who's the founder and and help him out of COVID. i mean we both came out of COVID in really bad shape and now together we're we're much stronger so yeah uh, that's that's worked out well i was thought maybe i'd get a scoop there you're gonna buy new belgium i had to ask so Kind of real quick before we go into the break, I do want to hear a little bit about just sort of how that transition looked. So, assume you had hop contracts, you probably had grains, you had beer in the tanks. Like, was it a, was it hard to just kind of divest all those things and, and go back to pills? How long did it take? And are you still working on it? No, we're we're out of that now. We, we what we did was we decided to go back to do one thing, and then we immediately stopped ordering inputs and and stopped brewing and. You know, it probably took us two or three months to, to the point where we were finished with it and the beer sold out. And then we were I done with it sometime in June, I think, of last year. So it's been tough year over year sales. We lost a big chunk of our, our business, mm-hmm. but we're doing just fine. And, and yeah, I mean, the other thing you got to remember in the plant here in the brew house that people are those guys are happy. They have fewer beers to deal with. You know, they love the idea of brewing different beers, but it's also a huge headache. So we simplified the challenge for them there. And, and so generally people were happy about not having to bring in, as you're suggesting, Kelly, these, these extra different malts, all this, these different inputs to make those those beers. They're all gone now. Does it require less staff to make one beer? Or is it Was there big changes on the staffing side? No, because at the same time, we brought on uh, both. Oh, so, uh, 
So technically, you're probably making more beers now overall than you were then. Yeah, I mean, this is where you you need to decide the difference between consumers' perception of brands and what's actually happening in a facility. So, for example, here in Canada over COVID, a big change that's occurred is Stella is now being produced here in Canada instead of being imported. And we watched that happen and realized very quickly, customers that love Stella, they either don't know or don't care. About it. And, you know, if you talk to people in bars, I can tell they're sort of, yeah, whatever. Don't eat. This is my beer. Don't bug me about my beer. Don't try to claim, hey, it's no longer an import. Right. It actually pisses off, right? They, they love the brand. They love New Belgium. They get they can get Buda Ranger here in Toronto. They're just so happy to have it, right? If someone tells them, hey, it's, it's made here in Toronto, not in the U.S., consumers don't want to hear that because it tastes exactly the same. It's the same beer. So there's a big difference between consumer perception. Stella is probably the best example. And what's actually happening in these facilities, right? So we're only making Stimusel Pilsner. We make Bose Lugtred, which is their leading beer by far, and their portfolio, and some other beers of theirs. We make Voodoo Ranger. We make Pat Tire in the facility. It's very manageable. Um, we're great for quality control. We don't, we're not working on new recipes all the time. But from a branding perspective, and again, the best way to describe it is you go into a bar and you see people, the other day I went to a bar, I saw people drinking Seamless of Pilsner out of our glass, Bose Lug Tread, the Belgian Fat Tire. Consumers are loving it, right? They they do one thing. There's only one Seamless brand. Seamless is still committed to that. What's happening in these facilities is is a completely other, you know, how many consumers really understand when they're drinking contract beers? Sam Adams, for so many years, contract brewed all of their beer all over the country. No one really knew that because they love the brand. I mean, and they, they didn't they care. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, they just want they want to make, make sure it has good shot. They want it to taste good when they buy it. They're investing in a six pack. They want it to taste great. They love the brand. It's a reflection of of their own personality. And as long as those things are in play, it looks great, tastes great. That's what they need. We're giving the consumer what they want. Yeah, everyone's happy. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, I do, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back. I kind of want to get your. <laughs> commentary on the industry overall and just sort of where it's going up there in Canada. I did have a question I was going to ask you of, uh, you know, it's early in the process, but do you think you made the right move? I think you've answered me that question nine times, but if there's something you want to add, please go ahead. Are we going to do that after the break or now? Go right now. Oh, is it the right move? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, for us, it's all about what consumers saying and, and uh, they love the story. Our, uh, so, Customers are really happy about it, and just just such a long stream of responses uh, on social um, supporting that move, and and also uh, our retailers were so important. The channels that we distribute the beer through are really happy to see this as well because they saw us as those people. No one else was doing that. Why did you give that up? And they're at like, please, I, we want you to. I mean, consumers want you to. They, you represent something for them. They don't want that to change. Why did you change it? Well, we didn't. We're going back to it. And the people are like, oh, you're going back. That's great. So, you know, it's sort of like if we pull it off, it's great for the facility. It's great for the brand. Um, and yeah, so I don't, there's just, there's no question that it's worked well for us. And, you know, I'm not going to make a lot of moves that I think are, are going to be wrong. I've been doing this for too long. You know, you're going to make moves that you test out and you, you, you make sure. I don't want to use a flyer when it, in the business, especially coming out of COVID. We were very confident after having lengthy discussions with our team, with retailers. We went to the LCBO, uh, who's the main retailer of alcohol 
was was the largest retailer of alcohol in the world until uh, two years ago. I think Costco is now past them. But and we asked them, we're thinking of doing this. What do you guys think? And when they come back saying resoundingly, please do it, you know you're going to be probably in a good position. Yeah. Well, they're the ones that have to support it if you do. So, yeah, you, you want them on your side for sure. That's one of my things. Ask for advice. Work with humility. You don't have all the answers. There's people out there that can help you with Yeah. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. Come back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, last segment. Welcome back. Those of you guys who listen to the show know that this is when we get to talk a little bit of trash about the industry and some of the shitty breweries out there. And, and maybe you don't want to, Greg. I'm not going to force you to do that. But let's first talk about Steam Whistle's plan to stay in the front of the crappy industry going forward. Like, what do you? What's the plan for the next five years, ten years? Um, obviously, you invested in divesting those brands and focusing back in. What are you going to do? Buy more breweries? License more brands? What, what's your plan? Well, it's pretty simple. With our main brand, Steam Whistle Pilsner, just sticking with do one thing and and continue to build relevance with that brand across the country and maybe into the U.S. at the right time, Kelly, possibly. But, you know, we've had experience with that before. It's a challenging marketplace, much more sophisticated from a distribution standpoint, highly competitive. One of the things I'll say about the U.S. I learned years ago is that, you know, what happens in the U.S. will come to Canada, but it's usually delayed. So we we took a trip down to, uh, to Anchor Steam back in the day. This is years ago, before Steam Whistle. And I remember seeing uh, beer glasses in the bars, like breweries had their own branded glasses. <laughs> in Canada, we didn't have any of that. It was all just tulip glasses with no branding on it. So, you know, come back to, to Toronto and go, let's put our own beer glass in. We did that and people like, they're all stealing it, right? So, so yeah, I mean, the industry is really led in the U.S. We really respect what's going on there and we, you know, spend time monitoring it and going down to see, see what, what's happening. But in terms of what, where we're going, it's about portfolio selling. So we've got Steam Whistle, we have Bose, we have New Belgium. You know, we'll be expanding on that for sure as we become more comfortable. I want to give the team time to adapt to the broader portfolio they have now with those three independent brands. We have a partnership with uh, Phillips Brewing, who's based in the West Coast in BC, the largest craft brewer in BC. And they currently represent our, our beer out, out in BC and Alberta. We do carry one of their Sorry, two of their beers here right now. And uh, it's not a huge amount of business for us, but we have great respect for those guys and, and are happy to, to represent their beers here. We also have a relationship with the largest craft brewer in Quebec. Huge market, similar size to Ontario. Boreal, fantastic brewer, been in the business longer than we have. They really know what they're doing. They represent us in Quebec. They carry a steam whistle in Quebec and Bose. And uh, so we maybe consider looking at doing something with them here, representing them here in Ontario. So generally to expand on that idea when the time is right and the partnerships are strong, 
I don't have a lot of interest in investing in smaller craft brewers because I know the challenges there. I've done that <laughs> starting up a craft brewery and it's a lot of work and uh, we have good infrastructure. Um, we have great relationships in the industry. So we're in a good position to bring in other independent, strong independent craft beer brands, premium brands, and, uh, you know, distribute and sell them across the country. Well, I know like you guys kind of have like, somewhere around like 1,200 breweries there. The U.S. is, you know, right at 10,000, 38 million to our 330 million. Supposedly, we uh, we drink more beer here per capita, but I don't know if that's entirely true. That, that, that's what I could find anyways. But I'm curious if... Like, do you know like what your kind of craft beer penetration is up there? Like, yeah, I think yours is twelve and ours is six. Really? Um, one of the reasons for that is the larger, the global players have more dominance here in terms of how it's distributed. So, believe it or not, in Ontario, most of the beer, a large volume of beer sold in Ontario is sold through what's called the beer store. Um, the beer store is owned by the larger breweries. Well, it was Labatt's and Molson here, but Molson Coors and ABI now own those retail stores. So as you can imagine, it's it's a little more difficult to gain market share when your competitor owns the stores. Although I will say we work very well with that chain of stores and, and we compared to a lot of crap breweries, we've done very well in them. Yeah, in terms of how distribution's done here, for example, you know, in, in, in a ballpark in the US, you're going to have a better representation of crap breweries in general. I think all the ballparks, football fields, you've got great representation of crap beers. Not so much in Canada. The larger guys have done a good job of, of keeping craft beer at bay to some degree. So generally, the reason you see half the market share of craft beer in Canada, you say in the U.S., is the market isn't quite as open here as we'd like it to be. And, you know, the Americans, you guys are the pioneers in craft. It's, uh, I think we've, again, I've said earlier on the call, we've got a lot of, a lot of growth opportunity in, in, in seeing what's going on in the U.S. It, it all, it all eventually happens here. So, Whatever is happening in the U.S. is happening in Canada, maybe to a lesser degree. That's all. Well, that's that's interesting. You could waste about 15 minutes on average anytime you want to by just asking an American craft brewer their thoughts on the three-tier system. Do you guys not have that there? Is that So the way it works here is we just ship our beer directly from our brewery, mainly to the beer store, which has over 400 stores, and then directly to uh, the LCBO, which sells beer and alcohol spirits. Well, that, um, that same brewer yeah, would so, lose his mind if he found out that AB owned the one store that you were selling to. Uh, that, that would be the main kind of like reason that we do have a three-tier system here is to prevent that. Right. Is that? Well, that's exactly right. And it works well for you guys. And, and you know, there's, there's, no, there's no middle distributor here. We just don't go directly. Well, there's advantages to it as well, right? We go directly to those stores. And a lot of cases, we direct, deliver directly. We are our own distributor. In fact, we do ship ourselves uh, the majority, majority of our beer. We ship ourselves our own fleet here. But that also, you know, distributors have a lot of leverage. Ballpark's probably the best example. Baseball park, the distributor's going to make sure that they've got a good variety of beers to offer in a ballpark, which reflects the interests of consumers, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think in that way, the three-tier system works really well for consumers. Yeah, up to a point, not with 10,000 breweries. We have, <laughs> we have a few less. No, I mean, I, you know, in my, my, in, in my opinion with that is what can you do? I think... We're, we're, we're seeing, you know, the industry is starting to change here. Breweries buying other breweries and breweries going into business. And, and it's going to take its natural course. Like a lot of different industries, a lot of people have jumped into it and decided they can make a go of it and, and they haven't been able to. I'll tell you, though, the big difference with craft is, in a way, it's like owning your own bar. There's something magical about it. You know, a guy, somebody comes up to some 
a buddy of his asked him, you want to invest in a craft brewery? And he's thinking, great, I could own my own craft brewery. This is awesome. I want to do this. I'll give you 80,000 bucks. Sure. So, you know, then he tells his friends, you know, maybe he plays hockey, right? Which is obviously very popular here. <laughs> I go to my uh, a hockey game on a Sunday night, you know, 10 o'clock at night, bring out my beer. I own part of a craft brewery. I'm proud of that, right? Kelly, you do not want to go back in there two years later and say, ah, my craft brewery went out of business. It's embarrassing, man. So you meet every cash call. No one wants to say, hey, we're in our business. If you're making stools, you know, tables, and it doesn't work out, who cares? But there's something about beer. It's just this emotive connection. There's so much pride that these breweries, even though they're they're eating up cash constantly, investors continue to inject cash and they don't want them going under. Mm-hmm. So they can survive for years without making money. It's ridiculous. That's why it just keeps going. And the market is more and more competitive, even though it's shrinking, because people dream about it. I want to own my craft brewery, or at least I want to invest in one. Yeah, a bit of a piece of it. I did a little bit of research before I was going to meet with you because I didn't know much about the uh, Canadian beer market. And I did come across an article somebody had written fairly recently that said that their estimation was that I think it was seven of 10 breweries were not profitable in Canada. Yes, that's pretty accurate, I would say. Really? I might say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually, because... for me, at the end, when I finally left, it was the last 18 months I had started like looking at merging and uh, either kind of blend kind of some of the things you guys are doing, like how can we get created and make this business work? And so obviously you reach out to the popular ones that you know are making money and nobody, I didn't talk to a single, I, I still to this day, I don't know that I've met a, a Texas craft brewer that's actually profitable, but no one will talk yeah. about it. This guy apparently in this article was willing to at least say it. So. No, no, there, there, a lot of people are not profitable. The model doesn't work. And this is why I go back to this idea, you know, we worked for 10 years in a brewery, had a broad portfolio of brand extensions. And then we decided, let's just make one beer. And then you're in there. I remember my dream was to hear the line running all day without any changeovers. It's just like, that's the dream, right? That's where you can actually make money in this business. So we'll come as close to we can to that. The smaller you are, and then the more new beers you bring out, less of a chance you're going to make money. But hey, Kelly, clearly a lot of people in this business... They don't care about making money. No, that's not the point. It's just too much fun to be Which stressed out and not sleep, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's not good for the industry, of course, because it makes it way too competitive. Because in any other industry, you're not making money. You shut your doors. I'd say the restaurant industry is a bit like that, too. It's like, ah, I've got a bar open. You know, we're not making minimum money this year. We'll make it next year. But, you know, I bring my buddies down and buy rounds for them and have them full for dinners. You know, we have a, we have a restaurant at the, in the Roundhouse. It's just so awesome having friends over there and they into the, it's just this great experience because it's so social, right? Yeah, you get to host them basically, but without having to bring them to your house. Oh, it's so nice. You don't want to close that place down. It's having competitors, thousands of them, that will run their business even though they make money. That's tough. Yeah, how do you compete against that? Yeah, because they they drive you in the market. The marketplace is driven to being unprofitable. It's like, oh my god. Well, one of the frustrating parts for me is I typically do a phone conversation before I do the interview, and so I did that with. What was my favorite brewery in Austin that closed um, dude, two years ago, three years ago? Great beer, great experience. And I told him on the phone, I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. But to be honest, I could name eight breweries right now that I think should have gone out of business before you. And I'm pissed that it was you. And that's part of what you get is these people who maybe the guy who finally went out of business is the one who's like, I'm just not going to keep putting that money into it. But the guy who makes really shitty beer but is maybe more charming. He's better at being the Pied Piper of rich assholes who will give him money, I guess. But You know, I've been doing this for 30 years, right? I, I find that banks are victims to it, too. They, they'll lend money to a craft brewery, and they won't lend money to a guy who's making bar stools. 
They just won't, right? Yeah. It's not as interesting. It's like, oh, you lend money. They go in there and they're like seeing all this stuff and they go, oh, yeah, we got to lend this guy money. Like I'm telling you, they do it. Just, they are just as susceptible as all. We're all susceptible to this, this dream of craft brewing. I was too. It was fun. I enjoyed my 10 years in the industry. So I'm going to let you get out of here, but I do have one final question. Girl comes in the brewery. You mentioned this happens to you. She says, I'm going to open a brewery. What is one mistake you do not want her to make? What, what Give her a piece of advice. Just don't do this. Yeah. You know, people shouldn't think that they want to be the only owners. When it comes to bringing equity, you need to be properly financed, Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. So what people do, and I've talked to many, many folks opening a new brewery, and I'll say, how is the financing coming? Well, we're struggling with it. Bring in a partner. You don't have to own the whole thing. What's important is you're successful, not how much you own. Would you rather own 10% of something that's really successful and profitable or 100% or 50% with a partner of something that's eh, probably going to go out of business? Yeah, and constantly needs more money. <laughs> yes, yeah. that is something that's really important. Understand you're going to have to have a partnership of some type. It's, business is all about partnerships. You might as well, right from the start, Bring on partners that can properly finance your expansion because it's a highly competitive industry. It's going to cost you more than you think, especially with inflation the way it is now. Don't make the mistake of being greedy when it comes to how much of that business you own because that is going to limit your growth and potentially limit your ability to be profitable. It's true. makes sense. And I've seen that play out many, many times. So good piece of advice. Before I let you get out of here, can you tell how to find you guys? Social media, website. I guess we can't yeah, buy it in the States, but... No, no, just steamwhistle.ca, right? You'll find us there for sure. We've been around for 22 years. So on the website, social media, Steamwhistle Pilsner, pretty easy. And if you're in town, please come down and visit the tap room and, and go for a tour of the brewery. It's pretty spectacular. Just the history. Forget it with Steamwhistle. The building itself is incredible. 32 bays, it's a shape of a horseshoe with a turntable in the middle, like Thomas Tank Engine thing. Steam engines came onto the turntable, and they were turned around into one of the 32 bays to be repaired. So it's a very unique building. I mean, there's many around North America, but we have one of the last remaining ones. Uh, it has a lot of rolling stock there, steam engines to view. Great for kids. We have a lot of kids come in our tap room with their families because they're going to the aquarium, and they're coming in to see Thomas Tank Engine. So... Yeah, please come visit if you're coming to Toronto and God host you. And if you're in, just ask for me. People ask for me, I'm happy to pop down and say hello. That's awesome. I will definitely make that a point if I make it up that area, which my wife told me we were going to sometime soon. So I'll reach out. But For sure. Definitely appreciate you sharing. Like I told you in the beginning, a completely different perspective. And I, I was uniquely fascinated. If you don't mind, I may have some follow-up questions. I may email you just because I'm really curious how this plays out. And I wish you guys the best. No, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. My wife, Sybil, is the person you talked to to set this up, and she's done PR for us for years. And I just want to acknowledge you doing a great job with this podcast to uh, build a, a story that really helps people understand maybe what they're getting into and the challenges of the industry with the experience you have in it. I mean, you've got wisdom that you can pass on and, and bring others on to tell the, those stories as well of what the challenges will help our industry for sure. So thanks for that. Well, that's the goal. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's to double salt in the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. 
It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.